He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms, and a lowering pile of building up a yard where it had so little business to be that one could scarcely help fancying it must have run there when it was a young house, playing at hide-and-seek with other houses and forgotten the way out again. It was old enough now, and dreary enough, for nobody lived in it but Scrooge, the other rooms being all let out as offices. The yard was so dark that even Scrooge, who knew its every stone, was fain to grope with his hands. The fog and frost so hung about the black old gateway of the house that it seemed as if the genius of the weather sat in mournful meditation on the threshold. Now, it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door except that it was very large. It is also a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence in that place, also that Scrooge had as little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the city of London, even including, which is a bold word, the corporation, aldermen, and livery. Let it also be borne in mind that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought on Marley since his last mention of his seven years dead partner's name that afternoon, and then let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face. It was not an impenetrable shadow as the other objects in the yard were, but had a dismal light about it, like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up on its ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stirred as if by breath or hot air, and though the eyes were wide open, they were perfectly motionless. That and its livid color made it horrible. But its horror seemed to be in spite of the face and beyond its control, rather than part of its own expression. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was a knocker again. To say that he was not startled or that his blood was not conscious of a terrible sensation to which it had been a stranger from infancy would be untrue. But he put his hand upon the key he had relinquished, turned it sturdily, walked in, and lighted his candle. He did pause with a moment's irresolution before he shut the door, and he did look cautiously behind it first, as if he half expected to be terrified with the sight of Marley's pigtail sticking out into the hall. But there was nothing on the back of the door, except the screws and nuts that held the knocker on. So he said, Humbug, and closed it with a bang. The sound resounded through the house like thunder. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. <laughs> <laughs> and I am a warily festive Michael Tatum. Warily festive. Yeah, I mean festive because we're, you know, balls deep in the holiday season. We are. We are quite, quite uh, deep. And, 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 and by balls, I mean like ornaments and wary because this is really traditionally a dark time of year. It is. It's most, this is a time to think about death. It is. It's only been in very recent times that we make it about other things. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not as happy as people like to think. I like. I feel like you should make things happy when you get a chance. And if you can make it spooky and happy, win, motherfucking win. Now I'm on board. All right. <laughs> this is Ghoul Intentions. Happy holidays. Yes. Whatever holiday you celebrate, uh, celebrate it with gusto. And um, I know that we are celebrating Christmas. Because we are in the South and and our families do that. And also we fucking love Christmas, so. I do like Christmas. Yeah. I do. I like, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be Santa Claus. 
You what? I did. I wanted to be Santa Claus when I when I grew up. When I found out that Santa Claus wasn't quote unquote real, it's because I had an asshole older brother. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert for those of you that. Sorry, I didn't mean to ruin anyone's childhood, but it's okay. I'm still working on becoming Santa Claus, so it it just may be that Santa Claus isn't real for a little while. You're but working on it. I'm working on it. Um, putting on weight and everything. Getting older, it's great. <laughs> but no, when I was a kid, I had a I had an. I still have an older brother who was like totally over the whole Santa thing and I was being a dick to him or something annoying and he was like, there's no Santa Claus, you know that, right? Like he just came out of nowhere with that. I was like, you're not, he's not going to come because you don't believe in him. Stop talking like that. I'm not, I'm not missing out on Christmas because you can't get your shit together, Tommy. And yeah. so, he, so he's like, let me fucking show you where mom and dad keep the Santa Claus presents hidden. That's some so bullshit. He, he was old to enough to know better not to fuck that up for you. Oh, he, he, but, he, but, oh, but too young to care. And so he he brought me up to the attic and showed me all these crazy man. I I was my parents were so shocked when they came home and I was just giving them the fucking eye like I was it was like they were the kid and I was the parent and they had stayed up all night past yeah. their like past their curfew and came home and I was waiting for them in the living room and they were like what's going on with you I'm like what indeed mother and father <laughs> what indeed <laughs> and I was and they told me that they, they were, I was like I Tommy told me there's no Santa Claus. Mm. And they were like, what? Thomas, get in here. Blah. They bitched at him. He's like, what? He's old enough to know. I was like, five. And oh, no. <laughs> so I was not old enough to know. My brother no. was just tired. Of, he ruined the My magic. brother was just tired of being asked to you know, play along with the charade. How so much older I had, was, than hmm? he was he? He's about nine years older than me. Nine, yeah. yeah. So plenty See, old enough. See, I'm 11 years older than Jean-Luc. And I remember, um, I feel like we started to get the idea beforehand uh, before Luke was born, because my older brother's a couple years older than me. And so, like, we knew. But my parents told me that if you ever say, if we ever hear you say in this house that you don't believe in Santa, you will no longer get gifts from Santa. And that's all I ever needed so to So they hear. were just fucking waiting yeah. for you to say it. Like, please yeah. get us and out I of never this responsibility. Did. I never did. I have yet to say that because I believe in Santa Claus. And I still get Santa Claus to this day. And way, so, to, way to tether your parents to right. a lifelong obligation. Well, and I think, though, you know, <laughs> I, I have some friends that don't do Santa Claus with their kids. And we definitely do with the girls. Um, and they don't because they don't want to lie. And they don't want to do this and that and the other or whatever. But for me, personally, this is my opinion, I believe that there are so few years that you genuinely can believe in magic wholeheartedly. Yeah. And and Santa Claus is part of that magic. Uh-huh. And I think it's uh-huh. important, too, for the parents to be able to give a gift and not get any thanks for that gift. It's important for everybody to do that, it, to be you know, able to it's give a, it's something. A good, it's a good, it's a good lesson in humility right because it's about what you're giving it's about making somebody else happy not receiving any accolades for that yes exactly and watching kids open santa and do that is there's oh my god it makes the it makes the holidays now Um, and kids are so yeah kids are like one they're really happy to get the gifts and super excited to have these these cool things to play with and stuff that they've wanted for you know at least a couple months And, and, but it's also the ritual of getting this gift. And like, when you come downstairs, there's always, at least when I was a kid, there was always this faint echo of doubt that maybe Santa didn't give me this gift I wanted because I wasn't right. as good as I could have been. So when I came down and found the gift that I was hoping for, I felt very proud of myself. Yeah. That I had pleased this, you know, the, the great God, Santa. 
Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we do also um, the like pretty much anything magic. I'm down. Like, yeah. Fairies. We don't do like the, this is a fairy garden and let's decorate. Those are cute and everything. But what we do is we get little fairy things to put in the garden, but in different places. So like the fairies can have a sitting area over here and then they can have their little gardening area. And then the girls get to move it around for the fairies. And sometimes they'll see evidence of it. And Serafina, the older one, she's eight. And she's like, they're not real. And then I say, in my logic, have you ever seen one? And she says, no. And I say, well, then how do you know? Mm. <laughs> it gets her every time she's like, <laughs> she's like I, I, no, I guess i don't <laughs> too young to have an argument for that i know it's pretty great it's pretty great so my but... parents told me there was no santa claus or they finally admitted there was no santa claus and and i then vowed to become santa claus so that no child would ever again have oh, to like make that discovery feeling. yeah but then it's really funny have you ever read Poor there's a little baby there's a famous letter that was published in a newspaper by an editor because he got a lot of um letters and he got a letter from some little girl that asked him you know my little my brother says santa claus isn't real is santa claus real and so this guy wrote this now famous uh, beautiful letter i encourage all of you to look it up and read it online if you can find it i think it was published in the 20s or 30s called yes virginia there is a santa claus yeah. and it's a grown-ass man who is you know has done some living and being a newspaper editor has probably seen or at least is not unfamiliar with the worst side of humanity able to to honestly tell a little girl there is a santa claus and this is what he really is and it's this gorgeous kind of exploration of the spirit of christmas which is when my parents kind of told me that i'm like okay well i like the spirit of christmas but i'm also going to wear a beard and i'm going to give children gifts have you ever worn a beard given children gifts I don't look that good in a beard. I'm going to have to work on that. So here's what I can't help but think. (laughs) Um, Years ago, Michael and I said that if we were single by the time we were 40. (laughs) We were each other's backup plan. We were each other's backup plan. (laughs) And it was nice and safe (laughs) because we would have no problem with um, each other hooking up with other people. Right, right. Yeah, because be we great. weren't going to. Yeah. We just were like, let's just get like, let's just you know. It's a and I was going to be your beard. I could have been Santa Claus's beard. Oh my God, you would have made a wonderful Mrs. Claus. Thank you. No, I would have been your actual beard. No, I don't well, want to be different. Mrs. Claus. I want to be the actual beard. <laughs> anyway, do we? I don't think we've even told them what the, the episode of the, t- the oh no, title what's is. the title? The title is. Sorry. We got way off track there, but that's what we do. It's, we're talking about Christmas. Um, it's all on track. I'm already a mule in. Deep. Uh, <laughs> balls deep, mule deep. Mule deep. Mule deep. Hashtag mule deep. There's a lot oh. of depth to this episode is what <laughs> I'm hearing. So much, a lot of depth. The title is? More of gravy than of grave. Delicious. Which also comes from A Christmas Carol. It's when uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, when confronted with the ghost of Jacob Marley kind of tells him, like, ah, you might be, like, the, the ghost tells him, like, you see me, but, you know, do you doubt your senses? And he's like, why, yeah, maybe. And he's like, why do you doubt your senses? And Scrooge is like, well, because a little thing affects him. And he goes, like, you could be this, you could be a bad spot of beef or a blot of mustard. And he famously says, well, there's more of gravy than grave about you, whatever you are. Humbug, I said. Did you like my Scrooge voice? It was really good. All I have to do is kind of flip the accent and it becomes my prospector voice. Oh, I could hear that. Yeah. There's more grave than grave about you. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see that that Christmas Carol for sure. And then and then the ghost like is like really pissed at him for making that joke. It's like, it's a good joke. It is as, a good joke. As, it's strong. You know, Victorian wordplay goes. 
And uh, the the ghost then like screams at him and terrifies him, and then Scrooge like I'm I'm gonna shut the fuck up now and listen right. to what you have to say. Maybe it's a great moment in ghost story history. Love it. He stays <laughs> to, to yes. find out what happens next. Yes. Um, so in that um, the the title, yes. we are just kind of celebrating all things this time of year, which is scary stories. I mean, Christmas Carol is. It's, it's, it's the Christmas it's ghost the story. the ghost story, right. right. And so uh, what we're going to do is uh, Michael is uh, going to Oh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do when we get there. When we get there. But you're going to get us first. So, so what a lot of people may not know who listen is that uh, it may seem revolutionary that Dickens wrote this ghost story about, you know, around Christmas. Mm-hmm. Because, well, ghosts of Christmas, that's fucked up. But Europe, especially England, has a very rich and long history of uh, telling ghost stories around the Yule log. Yes, so that's what I'm going to do. You're going to bring the hysteria uh, after I tell. After you're going to share a, a ghost, story. ghost story. It's a long Ooh, one. I want all of our listeners to picture like a nice fire with maybe some garland over the hearth. That's what I'm picturing. Uh, yeah. Maybe you have some eggnog, maybe right. a mule. Have a drink, get ready. Maybe it's eggnog. a long one. I love uh, it. What are so you going to read? I am reading um, Algernon Blackwood. <sighs> You love him. I do. Um, the Empty House, which is Ooh! one of the most classic haunted house stories of any of ever, but oh, it was written. It's Victorian is, oh, era. Yes. Yes. That's, okay. I'm going to get really comfortable here. Yes. So, In fact, I'm going to take off my shoes. Do it. <laughs> get comfortable. Everybody get cozy. This is going This is going to be a long story, so settle in. Get your drink on. <laughs> uh, get ready. God, yes. The Empty House by Algernon Blackwood Certain houses, like certain persons, manage somehow to proclaim at once their character for evil. In the case of the latter, no particular feature need betray them. They may boast an open countenance and an ingenuous smile, yet a little of their company leaves the unalterable conviction that there is something radically amiss with their being that they are evil. Willy-nilly, they seem to communicate an atmosphere of secret and wicked thoughts which make those in their immediate neighborhood shrink from them as from a thing diseased. And perhaps with houses, the same principle is operative, and it is the aroma of evil deeds committed under a particular roof, long after the actual doers have passed away, that makes the goose flesh come and the hair rise. Something of the original passion of the evildoer, and of the horror felt by his victim, enters the heart of the innocent watcher, and he becomes suddenly conscious of tingling nerves, creeping skin, and a chilling of the blood. He is terror-stricken without apparent cause. There was manifestly nothing in the external appearance of this particular house to bear out the tales of horror that was said to reign within. It was neither lonely nor unkempt. It stood, crowded into a corner of the square, and looked exactly like the other houses on either side of it. It had the same number of windows as its neighbors, the same balcony overlooking the gardens, the same white steps leading up to the heavy black front door, and in the rear there was the same narrow strip of green with neat box borders running up to the wall that divided it from the backs of the adjoining houses. Apparently, too, 
The number of chimney pots on the roof was the same, the breadth and angle of the eaves, and even the height of the dirty area railings. And yet this house, in the square, that seemed precisely similar to its fifty ugly neighbors, was as a matter of fact entirely different. Horribly different. Wherein lay this marked, invisible difference is impossible to say. It cannot be ascribed wholly to the imagination because persons who had spent some time in the house, knowing nothing of the facts, had declared positively that certain rooms were so disagreeable they would rather die than enter them again, and that the atmosphere of the whole house produced in them symptoms of a genuine terror while the series of innocent tenants who had tried to live in it and been forced to decamp at the shortest possible notice was indeed little less than a scandal in the town. When Shorthouse arrived to pay a weekend visit to his Aunt Julia in her little house on the seafront at the other end of the town, he found her charged to the brim with mystery and excitement. He had only received her telegram that morning, and he had come anticipating boredom. But the moment he touched her hand and kissed her apple-skin-wrinkled cheek, he caught the first wave of her electrical condition. The impression deepened when he learned that there were to be no other visitors, that he had been telegraphed for with a very special object. Something was in the wind, and the something would doubtless bear fruit, for this elderly spinster aunt, with a mania for psychical research, had brains as well as willpower, and by hook or by crook, she usually managed to accomplish her ends. The revelation was made soon after tea, when she sidled close up to him as they paced slowly along the seafront in the dusk. I've got the keys, she announced in a delighted yet half-awesome voice. Got them till Monday. The keys of the bathing machine, or? He asked innocently, looking from the sea to the town. Nothing brought her so quickly to the point as feigning stupidity. Neither, she whispered. I've got the keys of the haunted house in the square, and I'm going there tonight. Shorthouse was conscious of the slightest possible tremor down his back. He dropped his teasing tone. Something in her voice and manner thrilled him. She was in earnest. But you can't go alone, he began. Well, that's why I wired for you, she said with decision. He turned to look at her. The ugly, lined, enigmatical face was alive with excitement. There was a glow of genuine enthusiasm round it like a halo. The eyes shone. He got another wave of her excitement, and a second tremor, more marked than the first, accompanied it. Thanks, Aunt Julia, he said politely. Thanks awfully. I should not dare to go quite alone, she went on, raising her voice. But with you, I should enjoy it immensely. You're afraid of nothing, I know. Thanks so much, he said again. Uh, is anything likely to happen? A great deal has happened, she whispered, though it's been mostly cleverly hushed up. Three tenants have come and gone in the last few months, and the house is said to be empty for good now. In spite of himself, Shorthouse became interested. His aunt was so very much in earnest. The house is very old indeed, she went on. And the story, one unpleasant one, dates a long way back. It has to do with a murder committed by a jealous stableman who had some affair with a servant in the house. 
One night, he managed to secret himself in the cellar, and when everyone was asleep, he crept upstairs to the servants' quarters, chased the girl down to the next landing, and before anyone could come to the rescue, threw her bodily over the banisters into the hall below. And the stableman? Was caught, I believe, and hanged for murder. But it all happened a century ago, and I've not been able to get more details of the story. Shorthouse now felt his interest thoroughly aroused, but though he was not particularly nervous for himself, he hesitated a little on his aunt's account. On one condition, he said at length. Nothing will prevent my going, she said firmly, but I may as well hear your condition. That you guarantee your power of self-control if anything really horrible happens. I mean that you are sure you won't get too frightened. Jim, she said scornfully, I'm not young. I know, nor are my nerves, but with you, I should be afraid of nothing in the world. This, of course, settled it, for Shorthouse had no pretensions to being other than a very ordinary young man, and an appeal to his vanity was irresistible. He agreed to go. Instinctively, by a sort of subconscious preparation, he kept himself and his forces well in hand the whole evening, compelling an accumulative reserve of control by that nameless inward process of gradually putting all the emotions away and turning the key upon them. A process difficult to describe, but wonderfully effective, as all men who have lived through severe trials of the inner man well understand. Later, it stood him in good stead. But it was not until half-past ten when they stood in the hall, well in the glare of friendly lamps and still surrounded by comforting human influences, that he had to make the first call upon this store of collected strength. For once the door was closed, and he saw the deserted silent street stretching away white in the moonlight before them, it came to him clearly that the real test this night would be dealing with two fears instead of one— he would have to carry his aunt's fear as well as his own. And as he glanced down at her sphinx-like countenance and realized that it might assume no pleasant aspect in a rush of real terror, he felt satisfied with only one thing in the whole adventure. That he had confidence in his own will and power to stand against any shock that might come. Slowly they walked along the empty streets of town. A bright autumn moon silvered the roofs, casting deep shadow. There was no breath of wind, and the trees in the formal gardens by the seafront watched them silently as they passed along. To his aunt's occasional remarks, Shorthouse made no reply, realizing that she was simply surrounding herself with mental buffers, saying ordinary things to prevent herself thinking of extraordinary things. Few windows showed lights, and from scarcely a single chimney came smoke or sparks. Shorthouse had already begun to notice everything, even the smallest details. Presently, they stopped at the street corner and looked up at the name on the side of the house full in the moonlight, and with one accord, but without remark, turned into the square and crossed over to the side of it that lay in shadow. The number of the house is thirteen, whispered a voice at his side, and neither of them made the obvious reference, but passed across the broad sheet of moonlight and began to march up the pavement in silence. It was about halfway up the square that Shorthouse felt an arm slipped quietly but significantly into his own, and knew then that their adventure had begun in earnest, and that his companion was already yielding imperceptibly to the influences against them. 
She needed support. A few minutes later, they stopped before a tall, narrow house that rose before them in the night, ugly in shape and painted a dingy white. Shutterless windows without blinds stared down upon them, shining here and there in the moonlight. There were weather streaks in the wall and cracks in the paint, and the balcony bulged out from the first floor a little unnaturally. But beyond this generally forlorn appearance of an unoccupied house, there was nothing at first sight to single out this particular mansion for the evil character it had most certainly acquired. Taking a look over their shoulders to make sure they had not been followed, they went boldly up the steps and stood against the huge black door that fronted them forbiddingly. But the first wave of nervousness was now upon them, and Shorthouse fumbled a long time with the key before he could fit it into the lock at all. For a moment, if truth were told, they both hoped it would not open, for they were a prey to various unpleasant emotions as they stood there on the threshold of their ghostly adventure. Shorthouse, shuffling with the key and hampered by the steady weight on his arm, certainly felt the solemnity of the moment. It was as if the whole world, for all experience seemed at that instant concentrated in his own consciousness, were listening to the grating noise of that key. A stray puff of wind wandering down the empty street woke a momentary rustling in the trees behind them, but otherwise this rattling of the key was the only sound audible, and at last it turned in the lock, and the heavy door swung open and revealed a yawning gulf of darkness beyond. With a last glance at the moonlit square, they passed quickly in, and the door slammed behind them with a roar that echoed prodigiously through empty halls and passages. But instantly, with the echoes, another sound made itself heard, and Aunt Julia leaned suddenly so heavy upon him that he had to take a step backwards to save himself from falling. A man had coughed close beside them. So close that it seemed they must have been actually by his side in the darkness. With the possibility of practical jokes in his mind, Shorthouse at once swung his heavy stick in the direction of the sound. But it meant nothing more solid than air. He heard his aunt give a little gasp beside him. There's someone here, she whispered. I heard him. Be quiet, he said sternly. It was nothing but the noise of the front door. Oh, get a light, quick, she added, as her nephew, fumbling with a box of matches, opened it upside down and let them all fall with a rattle onto the stone floor. The sound, however, was not repeated, and there was no evidence of retreating footsteps. In another minute, they had a candle burning, using an empty end of a cigar case as a holder, and when the first flare had died down, he held the impromptu lamp aloft and surveyed the scene. And it was dreary enough in all conscience, for there is nothing more desolate in all the abodes of men than an unfurnished house dimly lit, silent, and forsaken, and yet tenanted by rumor with the memories of evil and violent histories. They were standing in a wide hallway. On their left was the open door of a spacious dining room, and in front the hall ran, ever narrowing, into a long, dark passage that led, apparently, to the top of the kitchen stairs. The broad and carpeted staircase rose in a sweep before them, everywhere draped in shadows, except for a single spot about halfway up where the moonlight came in through the window and fell on a bright patch of the boards. 
This shaft of light shed a faint radiance above and below it, leading to the objects within its reach a misty outline that was infinitely more suggestive and ghostly than complete darkness. Filtered moonlight always seems to paint faces on the surrounding gloom, and as Shorthouse peered up into the well of darkness and thought of the countless empty rooms and passages in the upper part of the old house, he caught himself longing again for the safety of the moonlit square, or the cozy, bright drawing room they had left an hour before. Then, realizing that these thoughts were dangerous, he thrust them away again and summoned all his energy for concentration on the present. Aunt Julia, he said aloud, severely, we must now go through the house from top to bottom and make a thorough search. The echoes of his voice died away slowly all over the building, and in the intense silence that followed, he turned to look at her. In the candlelight, he saw that her face was already ghastly pale, but she dropped his arm for a moment and said in a whisper, stepping close in front of him, I agree. We must be sure there's no one hiding. That's the first thing. She spoke with evident effort, and he looked at her with admiration. You feel quite sure of yourself. It's not too late. I think so, she whispered, her eyes shifting nervously toward the shadows behind. Quite sure, only one thing. What's that? You must never leave me alone for an instant. As long as you understand that any sound or appearance must be investigated at once, for to hesitate means to admit fear, that is fatal. Agreed, she said a little shakily after a moment's hesitation. I'll try. Arm in arm, Shorthouse holding the dripping candle and the stick, while his aunt carried the cloak over her shoulders, figures of utter comedy to all but themselves, they began a systematic search. Stealthily, walking on tiptoe and shading the candle lest it should betray their presence throughout the shutterless windows, they went first into the big dining room. There was not a stick of furniture to be seen. Bare walls, ugly mantelpieces, and empty grates stared at them. Everything, they felt, resented their intrusion, watching them, as it were, with veiled eyes. Whispers followed them. Shadows flitted noiselessly to the right and left. Something seemed ever at their back, watching, waiting an opportunity to do them injury. There was the inevitable sense that operations which went on when the room was empty had been temporarily suspended till they were well out of the way again. The whole dark of the interior of the old building seemed to become a malignant presence that rose up, warning them to desist and mind their own business. Every moment the strain on the nerves increased. Out of the gloomy dining room, they passed through large folding doors into a sort of library or smoking room, wrapped equally in silence, darkness, and dust, and from this they regained the hall near the top of the back stairs. Here, a pitch-black tunnel opened before them into the lower regions, and, it must be confessed, they hesitated. But only for a minute. With the worst of the night still to come, it was essential to turn from nothing. Aunt Julia stumbled at the top step of the dark descent, ill-lit by the flickering candle, and even Shorthouse felt at least half the decision go out of his legs. Come on, he said peremptorily, and his voice ran on and lost itself in the dark, empty spaces below. I'm coming, she faltered, catching his arm with unnecessary violence. They went a little unsteadily down the stone steps, a cold, damp air meeting them in the face, close and malodorous. 
The kitchen, into which the stairs led along a narrow passage, was large with a lofty ceiling. Several doors opened out of it, some into cupboards with empty jars still standing on shelves, and others into horrible little ghostly back offices, each colder and less inviting than the last. Black beetles scurried over the floor, and once, when they knocked against a deal table standing in a corner, something about the size of a cat jumped down with a rush and fled, scampering across the stone floor into the darkness. Everywhere there was a sense of recent occupation, an impression of sadness and gloom. Leaving the main kitchen, they next went towards the scullery. The door was standing ajar, and as they pushed it open to its full extent, Aunt Julia uttered a piercing scream, which she instantly tried to stifle by placing her hand over her mouth. For a second, Shorthouse stood stock still, catching his breath. He felt as if his spine had suddenly become hollow and someone had filled it with particles of ice. Facing them, directly in their way between the doorposts, stood the figure of a woman. She had disheveled hair and wildly staring eyes, and her face was terrified and white as death. She stood there motionless for the space of a single second. Then the candle flickered and she was gone. Gone utterly. And the door framed nothing but empty darkness. Only the beastly jumping candlelight, he said quickly, in a voice that sounded like someone else's and was only half under control. Come on, aunt, there's nothing there. He dragged her forward. With a clattering of feet and a great appearance of boldness, they went on. But over his body, the skin moved as if crawling ants covered it. And he knew by the weight on his arm that he was supplying the force of locomotion for the two. The scullery was cold, bare and empty, more like a large prison cell than anything else. They went round it, tried the door into the yard and the windows, but found them all fastened securely. His aunt moved beside him like a person in a dream. Her eyes were tightly shut, and she seemed merely to follow the pressure of his arm. Her courage filled him with amazement. At the same time, he noticed that a certain odd change had come over her face, a change which somehow evaded his power of analysis. There's nothing here, auntie, he repeated aloud quickly. Let's go upstairs and see the rest of the house, then we'll choose a room to wait up in. She followed him obediently, keeping close to his side, and they locked the kitchen door behind them. It was a relief to get up again. In the hall there was more light than before, for the moon had traveled a little further down the stairs. Cautiously they began to go up into the dark vault of the upper house, the boards creaking under their weight. On the first floor they found the large double drawing rooms, a search of which revealed nothing. Here also was no sign of furniture or recent occupancy, nothing but dust and neglect and shadows. They opened the big folding doors between front and back drawing rooms, and then came out again to the landing and went on upstairs. They had not gone more than a dozen steps when they both simultaneously stopped to listen, looking into each other's eyes with a new apprehension across the flickering candle flame. From the room they had left hardly ten seconds before, came the sound of doors quietly closing. It was beyond all question. They heard the booming noise that accompanies the shutting of heavy doors, followed by the sharp catching of the latch. We must go back and see, said Shorthouse briefly in a low tone and turning to go downstairs again. Somehow she managed to drag after him, her feet catching in her dress, her face livid. 
When they entered the front drawing room, it was plain that the folding doors had been closed half a minute before. Without hesitation, Shorthouse opened them. He almost expected to see someone facing him in the back room, but only darkness and cold air met him. They went through both rooms, finding nothing unusual. They tried in every way to make the doors close themselves, but there was not wind enough even to set the candle flame flickering. The doors would not move without strong pressure. All was silent as the grave. Undeniably, the rooms were utterly empty and the house utterly still. It's beginning, whispered a voice at his elbow, which he hardly recognized as his aunt's. He nodded acquiescence, taking out his watch to note the time. It was fifteen minutes before midnight. He made the entry of exactly what had occurred in his notebook, setting the candle in its case upon the floor in order to do so. It took a moment or two to balance it safely against the wall. Aunt Julia always declared that at this moment she was not actually watching him, but had turned her head towards the inner room, where she fancied she heard something moving. But at any rate, both positively agreed that there came a sound of rushing feet, heavy and very swift, and the next instant the candle was out. But to Shorthouse himself had come more than this, and he has always thanked his fortunate stars that it came to him alone and not to his aunt too. For as he rose from the stooping position of balancing the candle, and before it was actually extinguished, a face thrust itself forward so close to his own that he could almost have touched it with his lips. It was a face working with passion. A man's face, dark with thick features and angry, savage eyes. It belonged to a common man, and it was evil in its ordinary, normal expression, no doubt. But as he saw it, alive with intense, aggressive emotion, it was a malignant and terrible human countenance. There was no movement of the air, nothing but the sound of rushing feet, stockinged or muffled feet, the apparition of the face, and the almost simultaneous extinguishing of the candle. In spite of himself, Shorthouse uttered a little cry, nearly losing his balance as his aunt clung to him with her whole weight in one moment of real, uncontrollable terror. She made no sound, but simply seized him bodily. Fortunately, however, she had seen nothing, but had only heard the rushing feet, for her control returned almost at once, and he was able to disentangle himself and strike a match. The shadows ran away on all sides before the glare, and his aunt stooped down and groped for the cigar case with the precious candle. Then they discovered that the candle had not been blown out at all. It had been crushed out. The wick was pressed down into the wax, which was flattened as if by some smooth, heavy instrument. How his companion so quickly overcame her terror, Shorthouse never properly understood, but his admiration for her self-control increased tenfold and at the same time served to feed his own dying flame, for which he was undeniably grateful. Equally inexplicable to him was the evidence of physical force they had just witnessed. He had once suppressed the memory of stories he had heard of physical mediums and their dangerous phenomena, for if these were true, and either his aunt or himself was unwittingly a physical medium, it meant that they were simply aiding to focus the forces of a haunted house already charged to the brim. It was like walking with unprotected lamps among uncovered stores of gunpowder. So, with as little reflection as possible, he simply relit the candle and went up to the next floor. The arm in his trembled, it is true, and his own tread was often uncertain, 
but they went on with thoroughness, and after a search revealing nothing, they climbed the last flight of stairs to the top floor of all. Here they found a perfect nest of small servants' rooms with broken pieces of furniture, dirty cane-bottomed chairs, chests of drawers, cracked mirrors, and decrepit bedsteads. The rooms had low sloping ceilings already hung here and there with cobwebs, small windows, and badly plastered walls, a depressing and dismal region which they were glad to leave behind. It was on the stroke of midnight when they entered a small room on the third floor, close to the top of the stairs and arranged to make themselves comfortable for the remainder of their adventure. It was absolutely bare, and was said to be the room, then used as a clothes closet, into which the infuriated groom had chased his victim and finally caught her. Outside, across the narrow landing, began the stairs leading up to the floor above, and the servants' quarters where they had just searched. In spite of the chilliness of the night, there was something in the air of this room that cried for an open window. But there was more than this. Shorthouse could only describe it by saying that he felt less master of himself here than in any other part of the house. There was something that acted directly on the nerves, tiring the resolution, enfeebling the will. He was conscious of this result before he had been in the room five minutes, and it was in the short time they stayed there that he suffered the wholesale depletion of his vital forces, which was, for himself, the chief horror of the whole experience. They put the candle on the floor of the cupboard, leaving the door a few inches ajar, so that there was no glare to confuse the eyes, and no shadow to shift about on walls and ceiling. Then they spread the cloak on the floor and sat down to wait, with their backs against the wall. Shorthouse was within two feet of the door onto the landing. His position commanded a good view of the main staircase leading down into the darkness, and also of the beginning of the servant's stairs going to the floor above. The heavy stick lay beside him, within easy reach. The moon was now high above the house. Through the open window, they could see the comforting stars like friendly eyes watching in the sky. One by one, the clocks of the town struck midnight. And when the sounds died away, the deep silence of a windless night fell again over everything. Only the bottom of the sea, far away and lugubrious, filled the air with hollow murmurs. Inside the house, the silence became awful. Awful, he thought, because any minute now it might be broken by sounds portending terror. The strain of waiting told more and more severely on the nerves. They talked in whispers when they talked at all, for their voices aloud sounded queer and unnatural. A chilliness, not altogether due to the night air, invaded the room and made them cold. The influences against them, whatever these might be, were slowly robbing them of self-confidence and the power of decisive action. Their forces were on the wane and the possibility of real fear took on a new and terrible meaning. He began to tremble for the elderly woman by his side, whose pluck could hardly save her beyond a certain extent. He heard the blood singing in his veins. It sometimes seemed so loud that he fancied it prevented his hearing properly certain other sounds that were beginning very faintly to make themselves audible in the depths of the house. Every time he fastened his attention on these sounds, they instantly ceased. They certainly came no nearer. Yet he could not rid himself of the idea that movement was going on somewhere in the lower regions of the house. The drawing-room floor, where the doors had been so strangely closed, seemed too near. The sounds were further off than that. He thought of the great kitchen, with the scurrying black beetles and of the dismal little scullery, but somehow or another, they did not seem to come from there either. Surely they were not outside the house. 
Then, suddenly, the truth flashed into his mind, and for the space of a minute he felt as if his blood had stopped flowing and turned to ice. The sounds were not downstairs at all. They were upstairs. Upstairs, somewhere among those horrid, gloomy little servants' rooms with their bits of broken furniture, low ceilings, and cramped windows. Upstairs where the victim had first been disturbed and stalked to her death. And the moment he discovered where the sounds were, he began to hear them more clearly. It was the sound of feet moving stealthily along the passage overhead, in and out among the rooms and past the furniture. He turned quickly to steal a glance at the motionless figure seated behind him to note whether she had shared his discovery. The faint candlelight coming through the crack in the cupboard door threw her strongly marked face into vivid relief against the white of the wall. But it was something else that made him catch his breath and stare again. An extraordinary something had come into her face and seemed to spread over her features like a mask. It smoothed out the deep lines and drew the skin everywhere a little tighter so the wrinkles disappeared. It brought into the face, with the sole exception of the old eyes, an appearance of youth and almost of childhood. He stared in speechless amazement, amazement that was dangerously near to horror. It was his aunt's face indeed, but it was her face of forty years ago, the vacant, innocent face of a girl. He had heard stories of that strange effect of terror which could wipe a human countenance clean of other emotions, obliterating all previous expressions. But he had never realized that it could be literally true, or could mean anything so simply horrible as what he now saw. For the dreadful signature of overmastering fear was written plainly in that utter vacancy of the girlish face beside him. And when, feeling his intense gaze, she turned to look at him, he instinctively closed his eyes tightly to shut out the sight. Yet, when he turned a minute later, his feelings well in hand, he saw to his intense relief another expression. His aunt was smiling, and though the face was deathly white, the awful veil had lifted and the normal look was returning. Anything wrong, was all he could think to say at the moment, and the answer was eloquent coming from such a woman. I feel cold and a little frightened, she whispered. He offered to close the window, but she seized hold of him and begged him not to leave her side even for an instant. It's upstairs, I know, she whispered with an odd half-laugh, but I can't possibly go up. But Shorthouse thought otherwise, knowing that in action lay their best hope of self-control. He took the brandy flask and poured out a glass of neat spirit, stiff enough to help anybody over anything. She swallowed it with a little shiver. His only idea now was to get out of this house before her collapse became inevitable, but this could not safely be done by turning tail and running from the enemy. Inaction was no longer possible. Every minute he was growing less master of himself, and desperate, aggressive measures were imperative without further delay. Moreover, the action must be taken towards the enemy, not away from it. The climax, if necessary and unavoidable, would have to be faced boldly. He could do it now but in ten minutes he might not have the force left to act for himself, much less for both. Upstairs, the sounds were meanwhile becoming louder and closer, accompanied by occasional creaking of the boards. Someone was moving stealthily about, stumbling now and then awkwardly against the furniture. Waiting a few moments to allow the tremendous dose of spirits to produce its effect, 
and knowing this would last but a short time under the circumstances, Shorthouse then quietly got on his feet, saying in a determined voice, "'Now, Aunt Julia, we'll go upstairs and find out what all this noise is about. You must come, too. It's what we agreed.' He picked up a stick and went to the cupboard for the candle. A limp form rose shakily beside him, breathing hard, and he heard a voice say very faintly something about being ready to come. The woman's courage amazed him. It was so much greater than his own, and, as they advanced, holding aloft the dripping candle, some subtle force exhaled from this trembling white-faced old woman at his side that was the true source of his inspiration. It held something really great that shamed him and gave him the support without which he would have proved far less equal to the occasion. They crossed the dark landing, avoiding with their eyes the deep black space over the banisters. When they began to mount the narrow staircase to meet the sounds which, minute by minute, grew louder and nearer. About halfway up the stairs, Aunt Julia stumbled, and Shorthouse turned to catch her by the arm— and just at that moment, there came a terrific crash in the servant's corridor overhead. It was instantly followed by a shrill, agonized scream that was a cry of terror and a cry for help melted into one. Before they could move aside or go down a single step, someone came rushing along the passage overhead, blundering horribly, racing madly at full speed, three steps at a time, down the very staircase where they stood. The steps were light and uncertain, but close behind them sounded the heavier tread of another person, and the staircase seemed to shake. Shorthouse and his companion just had time to flatten themselves against the wall when the jumble of flying steps was upon them, and two persons with the slightest possible interval between them dashed past at full speed. It was a perfect whirlwind of sound breaking in upon the midnight silence of the empty building. The two runners, pursuer and pursued, had passed clean through them where they stood, and already with a thud the boards below had received the first one, then the other. Yet they had seen absolutely nothing. Not a hand, or an arm, or a face, or even a shred of flying clothing. There came a second's pause. Then the first one, the lighter of the two, obviously the pursued one, ran with uncertain footsteps into the little room where Shorthouse and his aunt had just left. The heavier one followed. There was a sound of scuffling, gasping, and smothered screaming, and then out onto the landing came the step of a single person treading weightily. A dead silence followed for the space of half a minute, and then was heard a rushing sound through the air. It was followed by a dull, crashing thud in the depths of the house below, on the stone floor of the hall. Utter silence reigned after. Nothing moved. The flame of the candle was steady. It had been steady the whole time, and the air had been undisturbed by any movement whatsoever. Palsied with terror, Aunt Julia, without waiting for her companion, began fumbling her way downstairs. She was crying gently to herself. And when Shorthouse put his arm round her and half carried her, he felt that she was trembling like a leaf. He went into the little room and picked up the cloak from the floor, and arm in arm, walking very slowly, without speaking a word or looking once behind them, they marched down the three flights into the hall. In the hall they saw nothing, but the whole way down the stairs they were conscious that someone followed them, step by step. 
When they went faster, it was left behind. And when they went more slowly, it caught them up. But never once did they look behind to see. And at each turning of the staircase, they lowered their eyes for fear of the following horror they may see upon the stairs above. With trembling hands, Shorthouse opened the front door. And they walked out into the moonlight and drew a deep breath of the cool night air blowing in from the sea. And I'm done. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. God, so, good. so good. Yes. Oh, I love his aunt. I know. She's so great. What a great character. And I love that she's the one that's. She's like, we're doing this. Inspiring all of I'm it. going yeah. anyway. And you're going to come with me if you're any kind of man. Yeah. And then, oh, mm -hmm. I love it. And I so love that's... the little flashes of youth that he sees in her. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe she's got some kind of, you know, strange sympathy with the, the, the girl that the was girl, murdered all right? those years ago. Oh, and the fact that, of course, he is the one that sees the guy. Mm -hmm, right the in his face. Guy. Like, who the fuck are you? Like, I right. just think it's so, oh, I love fuck. it. <laughs> there he is. He um, <laughs> oh. That's a great story. I, didn't, yeah. I have never actually read that story. You I love haven't. I love Algernon Blackwood, but oh, yeah. I've never this read that particular story. Like perfect, perfect little it's haunted perfect. house story. Yeah. 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 So I hope everybody enjoyed it. I know it was a long one. Thank you for sticking through. Oh, it was um, so good. It was so to, good. I to was just hear like... it. But I love this. I love being able to tell ghost stories like this on Christmas. You know, it doesn't have to always be Halloween. We can tell no. ghost stories all the time. All well, like we do. Yes. That's why we do this podcast. You know, it's funny. Um, I think I like that story uh, more because it's about two people like us that are like, there's a haunted house and we're going to go we're gonna fucking go. see what it's we gonna see. It's going to be creepy. Like, that's yeah. so... I, I, well, and, they're, and they go to Talk about to knowing your sure. audience. <laughs> yeah. But they also go, they go knowing that it's haunted, believing it's haunted, but also expecting shenanigans. So they go to make sure there's yeah. nobody else in the house, that nobody can get in, that that there's nothing, you know, they're they're going to handle it scientifically mm -hmm. until mm -hmm. it can't be handled scientifically anymore. Oh, my and God. I love and it. And they brought alcohol. I love that too. They would if this if they were living now they'd God. be doing a podcast. They would and I would um, listen to it. <laughs> we would partner up with them. I oh I love it. Did you know so it's a little a literary side note Algernon Blackwood also wrote a story called The Willows which is very different. Uh, it's mm -hmm. also it's a, more of a cosmic terror story. He wrote just a shit ton of ghost stories and spooky he, shit. He did. Yeah. And The Willows H.P. Uh, Lovecraft considered it his favorite story in the English language. Oh, okay. Him a lot. It's if you ever get a chance to read it. It's we, it's a weird one. It's about a camping trip that goes horribly wrong. Oh. Um, or horribly right, depending on depending, whose side you're yeah. on. But I love his writing style. Man, the Victorians just knew how to tell a good ghost story. They did. Well, yeah, they, did. they really and did. I love it. It also they, the, they knew they they was really big on mood, setting a mood for a well, space. Well, that's the whole thing. A ghost yeah. story without mood is like it's. And they take the time to do it. It's like eggs Benedict without Bernay sauce. Right. Yeah. Oh, God, I love Bernays sauce. Right? Oh, but... I love Bernays. Sorry. <laughs> then you just, without it, you've just got a fucking poached egg on a muffin. Which is Maybe also delicious. Delicious, but without the <laughs> Bernays sauce? Like, come on. It's well, too then dry. it's not Eggs Benedict. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I also love the, the, the story, the details of it, little things here and there. Kind of reminded me of our experience at that hotel that oh, one time, yeah. not so long ago, yeah, that we'll yeah. have to talk about it. Uh, look at how. I'm teasing our audience. I don't Always. mean to. But one You're day we'll have to tell the story. It's one they of my love favorites. it. You guys love it. It keeps them coming back. I yeah. Mean, yeah. That was so, a great story. Thank and I you. loved how you read it. That's thank you so, so much.
All right, so your turn. Okay, so I, as my Christmas gift to you. Yay! And, and to our listeners. Wait a minute. Yeah, I didn't get you anything. Um, <gasps> <laughs> no, this, I, for the podcast here, I have brought you a whole smorgasbord, a Christmas Eve Chinese buffet, if you will, oh. of ghost stories. All right, Because going into the whole Christmas Carol thing. Did you know, by the way, that uh, Charles Dickens actually self-published A Christmas Carol? I didn't know that. Yeah, his star Wait, was kind of fading by the time he came up with it. And his publisher, his old publisher, was like, nah, I'm good, thanks. Yeah. So he self-published. How badass is well, that? Well, cheers to that. Cheers to that. 175 years. 175 years. Mm. Thank you for Christmas Carol. Probably could have been a better person, but you know. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different that's a different but thanks episode. for giving us characters that were better than you were that's right that's, that's the writer's right. job really <laughs> so I'm gonna give you four stories all course true stories by the way corresponding to the ghosts the spirits in A Christmas Carol I love it now yeah? that the mood has been set right, by a long right. ass story let's do it oh I love it and again it's just like just I feel so British right now telling ghost stories for Christmas on, on Christmas Eve I mean be honest you've always feel at least 30% British <laughs> Always thirty percent on a bad day. That's what I'm saying. Um. <laughs> I was going low. <laughs> this is why we have all of those listeners in the UK. Thank you, listeners in the UK. Um, so let's start with Jacob Marley, okay. of course, who who we've already met earlier in the episode when he was a door knocker, right? And there is only one. There is only one Marley. If your only... experience with Christmas Carol. <laughs> It's, it's two it's, Marleys. It's that's, the Muppets. Yeah, that's a wonderful movie. It's so and that's, good. So here's there, here's, a little, here's a little detail about Jacob Marley that uh, is commonly missed by people that are only familiar with the film and TV versions. So there's been, I mean, dozens of them by now. And a lot of them are really good. I love Muppet Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. I love the George C. Scott one that You're they right. played a lot when we were kids yeah. on, on network television on Christmas. It was really fun. Scrooged. But, Fucking Scrooge. love Scrooge. I love Scrooge. Do you know I watched so that for the much. fast time, the, for the first time last year? That's you hadn't seen Bill ever. Murray and Scrooge. Oh my god, Not it's ever. so great! I love their version of Marley too. The old mm-hmm. TV producer with mm-hmm. the golf ball coming out of his head. Anyway. So what's commonly missed um, by people who are only familiar with it by that and not through the actual reading of it. If you've never read it, I really highly recommend it. It's a short book. It's really good. It's gorgeous. Um, and there's so much more atmosphere and little details here and there that they just that don't, don't translate to film or TV. But one of the things that people tend to miss is that Jacob Marley isn't just the messenger of the three spirits that come that night to save Scrooge's soul. Uh, he's the reason they're coming. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really go into detail for lack of time because he makes it very clear in the beginning. He's like, I, my time is short here. I can only, I've only come and I can only tell you certain things. So fucking listen. But he implies very heavily that he, in his afterlife, dismal as it is, being bound in chains and forced to fucking wander the earth and not be able to interact with people until the end of time, um, has somehow managed to arrange for these spirits to come and try to save his friend's life. Friend in air quotes, because there's another detail that I love that's horrifying, but that only makes sense if you kind of know something about how the Victorians buried their dead. Um, Scrooge wasn't that good of a friend. He spent almost no money on Jacob Marley's funeral, 
And you can tell this because of the cloth he's wearing around his head that binds his jaw. Right. There's a detail in the book, and I think one of the movies does it, where he takes, he unbinds the cloth from the top of his head and his jaw then kind of horrifyingly, why did I say it weird? Horrifyingly, horrifyingly. <laughs> horrifyingly. Um, <laughs> very British pronunciation. Uh, his jaw then slackens all the way to his chest. Ew. Like, awfully. <laughs> Like almost Beetlejuice style, right? Yeah, and, that's what. But I was and and to us, that just seems like a weird detail. But to Victorian readers, that meant, oh my God, Scrooge didn't spend any fucking money on his funeral because to keep the mouth tastefully shut for the ceremonies, which is, we still do now, um, it costs money to use glue or thread or makeup. And so instead, Scrooge was like, ah, I'm not paying for just, that. And just tie just a ribbon around it. Yeah. So that's that's a motion that Marley kind of does. Uh, you know, it's assumed to kind of let Scrooge know, hey, fuck you, asshole. I know exactly right. how much. You know. So in return, here I am trying to save your fucking immortal soul by arranging for the ghost. You're welcome ahead of time, Dick Bath. Right. <laughs> did you say Dick Bath? I did. <laughs> <laughs> dick Bath sounds kind of pleasant. I mean, if it's if it's my own dick being given a bath. Right. If it's a bath of dicks. Yeah, I don't know about that. It's just like the bath water that dicks get washed in. <laughs> That's in my mind. That's it's what it probably is. a Christmas tradition somewhere. It has to be. So anyway, so looking for sounds a, very Grecian. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we're not talking about Greeks. Uh, so. <laughs> we kind of are. Well, we're talking about Romans next. So, oh, okay. so here's the thing. So I, so I, I searched for uh, a ghost that would kind of correspond to this iconic idea of the ghost in chains that comes through the house and you know warns or whatever, and. Um, it actually brings us to the oldest recorded haunted house story in the world. Okay. Which comes from a guy named Pliny the Younger. P-I-L-P-L-I-N-Y uh, the Younger. I Pliny. assume. Pliny? I assume is Pliny? Pliny. I assume his father was Pliny the Older, which seems like a bullshit name to give your kid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but Pliny was a magistrate of ancient Rome who kept up a lot of correspondences with a lot of people, and uh, many of his letters still survive and give us an interesting uh, insight into the time. He right. was eyewitness to a lot of events, not least of which being like the the, uh, uh, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. Mm -hmm. We know a lot about that because of his letters. And he wrote this story in a letter to um, his patron, a guy named Lucius Sura. He wrote about this ghost story that was well-known and supposedly true. And it, it's about this Stoic philosopher named, and this fucking name just triples off the tongue, Athenodorus Canonides. Well, it triples off your tongue. <laughs> I don't think it triples off anyone's tongue. Nothing it's like so, You've Latin. made it sound lovely. Really? Athen yeah. It sounds like a kind of fungal infection. Athenodora? Athen Athenodorus Canonides. Like, I'm terribly sorry. You've got uh, advanced stage... Uh, Athenodide. Of like Ath thinking, Athenodorus it, Canonides. It's it's a condition that makes you believe you live in Athens or you're from Athens. <laughs> well, so the story that Pliny is telling to his uh, patron in this letter is about this guy, this famous old Stoic philosopher who uh, kind of in his later years decided to go to Athens and he wanted to like find some nice quiet place to write his big philosophical magnum opus, right? Mm-hmm. He finds this large, beautifully appointed house that is for rent at rock-bottom prices. So naturally, he can't refuse, but he is told by the landlord, look, the reason it's so cheap is because every tenant who's lived here before has only lasted a night. They all leave mm -hmm. the first thing the following morning because apparently they see this, this horrifying specter of this gaunt, bent, 
uh, emaciated old man bound in chains who rattles about and mm. terrifies them. Uh, well, Athenodorus is like, he's a philosopher, he's a man of reason. So he's like, ah, that sounds like bullshit, so I'm going to just move in. <laughs> Uh, because, I mean, you know, it's cheap. I just <laughs> Typical, like this, I like, can't see a thing over all this value. I'm going to go with no. <laughs> I'm a philosopher, so I'm going to see Ghosts don't bother philosophers. So he didn't believe. So he, he gets the house, and his first night there, this philosopher does indeed <laughs> learn that there are more things in heaven and earth. Philosopher real? Oh, <laughs> I just thought of that. I'm so he's in, his, he's, in his, he's in his sanctum sanctotum, his inner chambers, and he's writing his book, and he's mulling over, the story goes, uh, this particularly thorny philosophical problem. How do I word this? How do I build this, you know, this idea? And he's interrupted in the dead of night, long after his fellow city men have gone to bed. He's up burning the midnight oil, and he hears the sound of chains scraping along the stone floor of the house downstairs. Ugh. And he's like, of course, what the fuck? Someone's playing a prank. He just kind of goes back to his work, convinced he's going to ignore it. Uh, seeing some similarities here to Scrooge and I Jacob do, Marley, right? Yes. Well, so he, the the sounds get closer and closer to his chamber, and in short order, this ghost, who's clearly nothing but a ghost, <laughs> uh, enters the chambers, and he is, as described, he is this gaunt, emaciated. De- desiccated, bent old man with wild eyes and his hair's like flame and he's just covered in heavy, thick chains from head to toe. Mm. And he's not speaking, but he's making a, a huge clatter with all these chains. And he raises a hand to Athenodorus and beckons him to follow, which Athenodorus, being like, well, fuck, in for a penny, in for a pound, I might as well go and see what happens. <laughs> he wasn't like... <laughs> Thank you, no. I mean, like, Thank I've you already, so much, no. He's like, I've already lost my train of thought, so I might as well see what this bitch wants. But lots to find he, out. <laughs> so he follows the ghost. The ghost leads him out into the courtyard. Okay. And then the, the ghost kind of focuses on this little plot of earth in the corner and then looks at him and disappears. <gasps> now, the philosopher has the presence of mind to mark the spot. And, uh, which is, I mean, good for him. Yes. Because the following morning, he goes to the city magistrate and kind of says, we need to dig this plot of land up. They do. And what do they you do? think they They're find? They do. They're just like... They find a skeleton that's been there for God knows how long, and it's wrapped in chains. <gasps> in the secret burial plot. So Athenodorus So, what, is he going to, like, rise to the top? Like, why chains? I wonder, what did they bury him in chains? I don't know. They're, they're, they never find out. There was no, there's no uh, written record of why this poor body also, was there. how crazy is it that he's like, hey, guys, saw this ghost, made an X, let's go dig it up. And they were like, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the ghost in chains had been a thing for a while. People have been telling that story all over town oh. about this house. And to have this guy who didn't believe oh. finally go, okay, I fucking saw it. We clearly have something we need to investigate. He followed your advice without knowing it. So, and he also and he had, stayed. Right. And he followed the guy. And he right. saw what the guy. Nobody else did. And no one else. Everyone Everybody else, else ran. got scared. Ran they're like, like bitches. And, and they rather, he stayed being a philosopher. And he, he arranged for the remains to have a proper burial. And afterwards, oh. the ghost never appeared again. What? Yeah. So, at least not in chains. Yeah. There's an illustration that someone did, an old wood, uh, I think it's a woodcut or maybe a think illustration of the story. And it's really fucking cool because if you look at the illustration of Marley's ghost in the original 
self-published version of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens that I can't remember that illustrator's name, but it it is clearly inspired by the illustration of the Pliny the Younger's story of Athenodorus. Okay. And it's supposed to be true. So isn't that cool? The that oldest cool. haunted house story that we have on record is it's about a ghost in chains that clearly inspired Charles Dickens' right. version of, of Marley. Who? And that makes me think of Marley and me, which I've never seen. <laughs> totally different. Here's why. <laughs> you know, there's it'll always end up somewhere. Maybe. So it makes me think of Thanks Marley. for bringing the room down, Jamie. I am not bring I've never seen the movie because I know how it ends. I'm not interested. But well, everything ends pretty much a similar way. Anyway, go right, on. But uh, what I want to see is Marley and me, but with like Jacob Marley. <laughs> well then it's like not it's, as sad at the end because he's already dead no it's obviously a comedy <laughs> I just want someone to make it I would watch the shit out of that <laughs> oh my god Jacob Marley oh, and me Jacob Marley and me that could, that could have been what Christmas Carol was called <laughs> oh my god you're killing <laughs> that's me that's what I'm calling it from now on you're killing me um, <laughs> <laughs> we're retitling this episode to Jacob so, Marley okay, and so, me <laughs> so this one we really should consider it um <laughs> Okay, so this one, so now we have the Ghost of Christmas Past, which is the first of the three spirits of Christmas that come and visit him, right? And for this one, I wanted to I wanted to find a story, a true story, about a ghost that gives a, a living person some detail that they couldn't otherwise have known mm-hmm. about the past that ends up turning out to be completely 100% true. And it's kind of a hard, I was like, oh, am I going to find something like this? Because, you know, whatever, I, I want a ghost that has a mission and that shows up and says, hey, you, you, there's this piece of the puzzle from, the, from you know, obviously from the past that you need to know and I have it, you don't. And I wanted a story about that. And I found one. And more, even more amazing than that, there is a possibility that this ghost is related to you. What? Yeah. Shut your whore mouth. This is <laughs> never going to happen. Uh, the, Tell me everything. So corresponding I'm... to the ghost of Christmas so past, okay. we have the, at least locally famous, if you live in West Virginia, the Greenbrier ghost of West Virginia. Now, um, so let me get to the story. And this is true. This is all documented and actually among le- among lawyers and students of law, this case has some special bearing because it's the only example of its kind. Uh, there was a woman named Elva, uh, E-L-V-A, Zona Hester. I <gasps> uh, was born in Greenbrier, West Virginia in, in 1873. It's about a decade after the state was actually founded, right? Uh, now, for the time period, she was a bit of a wild child, a bit of a free spirit. She had a kid out of wedlock in uh, in 95. I love it. And uh, in November of the following year, 1896, she, after like this whirlwind courtship with a local blacksmith, she married this guy. Uh, the blacksmith's name was uh, Edward Stribling. Uh, Trout was his nickname. Shoe. A lot of names Shoe. these people had. Shoe. S-H-U-E. Oh, shit. Does that name mean something to you? That's a different family name. There's, you're, there's no way you're not fucking related to these people then. Okay. So he was kind of known around town as Trout. He was about 10 years older than she was. Now, Elva's mother, Mary Jane Hester, had her reservations about the marriage, as mothers often do, right? But it turns out that, you know, even though the couple, to all appearances, seemed madly in love and totally made for each other, Mary's misgivings about her daughter's match was 
were, were tragically prescient because right. in January of the next year, uh, the 11-year-old son of a neighbor who often helped uh, Elva around the house discovered her lifeless body at the foot of the stairs when Aww. he came over on an errand. Now, he ran home to tell his mother, who in turn notified this guy named George Knapp, who's the town doctor slash coroner. Knapp showed up about an hour later and found Edward Shue, Trout, who had already was already there, had taken Elva's body and moved her to the bedroom and gone ahead and dressed her for burial. Mm-hmm. Which was unusual to have done right. that in the hour before any officials could come and see the body. Um, even more suspicious, while Knapp was trying to examine the body to get a cause of death, any time he got near this stiff high collar that Shu had dressed her, her neck in... Mm-hmm. She would, like, cry out in agony, like, just grief, unimaginable, gnashing his teeth, just making a huge to-do of it did and distract kids? him. Uh, they did not. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, so, but she did have, she did have a kid earlier. Right, previously. Right. Okay. Um, I don't really know no, what I was that thinking kid. that no maybe record. I had heard this story before, but I just didn't know that the names, but, uh, no, it's different. It's different. Well, so the whole time the doctor is trying to inspect the body, he's like, anytime he gets near this woman's neck that he's clearly tried to hide, mm-hmm. um, you know, he cries out and just makes some, gives some excuse, whether whatever, keeps distracting just the doctor. Just makes him suspicious. And, and totally suspicious. But the doctor being, the doctor sounds like a complete dumb fuck to me. He chalks the death down. He listed originally as uh, what they used to call back then an everlasting faint, which just means heart attack. Mm. Um, it just means dying. Yeah, just mean you're never, an everlasting <laughs> fate from which you don't wake. Um, that's just but later, di- that's just death. That's death. now later. He changed that on his report to complications from childbirth, even though Elva had not shown any signs to any of her family or anyone uh, of being with child mm-hmm. in all that time. So that was unusual. Now he had been treating her for a while for female. Issues. It's not right. specified what those were, but it may be complications from the birth she gave a couple of years earlier. We don't know. She might have been hysterical, so he was rubbing well, them out. True, right? And yeah. this guy didn't seem to be a very good doctor. Now, uh, adding to the suspicion was during her funeral, Edward Shue stuck to the fucking casket like glue mm-hmm. and would not let anyone come near it without like he would try he would do his best to try to distract them from from looking too closely at the high collar he dressed her in and uh, again unusual that he dressed her for burial because that was usually the job of women uh, okay. especially in this time period in that area so it's kind of unusual that he did it himself now her mother mary was clearly suspicious and, and when, when she learned that her daughter was dead the first words out of her mouth was like oh my god edward you did something i don't know what but he did something he's yeah. responsible in some way and after the burial she started praying that Elva's ghost would come to her uh, and tell her what really happened. Well, about a month after the burial, for four nights in a row, the ghost of Elva Hester came to her mother, Mary Jane, in the night, in her bedroom, sat down on the edge of her bed, and told her everything. And it's, uh, evidently, the ghost said that Edward Shue had, in a drunken rage strangled her over a fucking argument about what to have for dinner. That's what cost her her life, was some argument about he didn't like what she was going to cook, and she was, like, trying to explain to him, well, this is what we have, and, you know, whatever. And he fucking strangled her. He crushed her windpipe and broke the top vertebra in her neck. Holy shit. Now, on the fourth night that the ghost visited and repeated all this, before leaving, the ghost twisted Elva... (gasps) Twisted her neck, twisted her head all the way around to display the wounds. And then disappeared. (sighs) 
Mary told everyone this story. Like, you've got to do something. I have the worst case of goosebumps ever right now. Well, here's the fucked up part. Most everyone else in the town was like, this is not. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. This is a mother who's just bereft and and crazy. Um, Her brother, however, and their neighbors were convinced enough that they hired a lawyer by the name of John Alfred Preston. Who at first was like, eh, kind of shared the town's disbelief. But when he talked to George Knapp, the coroner, uh, the coroner, and like looked at like, and he talked about, and this is when the coroner told me, yeah, he was acting a little weird when I tried to examine it, and I, he was like, all right, cool. So the lawyer then was like, fuck it, we got we got to do something about this. So he obtained a warrant for exhumation, and on February second, uh, eighteen ninety seven. That's my brother's birthday. Wow, he's old. February. He's very old. He's born on February 2nd, though. <laughs> on February 2nd, 1897. Just more connections. It's real weird. This is crazy, right? Yeah, just I should have bricked when I found this. They exhumed her body and found that the body bore the exact wounds that the ghost had told her mother she had. The crushed windpipe and the top, the top vertebra in her neck was broken. <sighs> Edward Shue was brought to trial for murder. Now, the prosecution originally didn't want Mary, her mother, to testify because they thought the whole ghost story angle would kind of hurt the credibility of their case. For that reason, the defense did put her on the stand thinking, yeah, fuck you guys, and it backfired. It backfired spectacularly. The jury was so convinced by her story and her having this knowledge Mm -hmm. she could not otherwise have known that they found Edward Chu guilty and uh, of murder of Elva Mm -hmm. Jane, of Elva Hester, excuse me, Elva Zona Hester, and making his the only trial in U.S. history, not only in which a ghost figures as a key witness, but in which a ghost pretty much decided the goddamn case for the jury. Wow. And you may be related. So here's what's weird. Okay. Extra weird. An extra level of weird. The whole thing's weird. This is extra. So Hester is my dad's name. Um, Mm -hmm. For people who don't know, uh, it's my technically stepfather's name, but uh, they got married when I was like four. So I don't remember any other father besides him. So that was my dad, dad, my dad. Um, Jean-Luc, my brother is Jean-Luc Hester. That's the last name. So, um... Hester's dad's side of the family. Shu uh, was my great grandmother on my mother's side's maiden name. Oh, there's a connection. There actually has to be a connection. And they're both traced back. We traced uh, them back to t- the Tennessee area. So West Virginia is not that far from that whole, like, West Virginia. Kentucky, Tennessee, Ooh. that whole area kind of... You've got to do some digging Ooh. and see if there's a relationship Ew. there. But yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I can't wait to tell my mom. Oh my God. Isn't it cool? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the story of Elva Zona Hester, the wow. Greenbrier ghost of West Virginia, the, the ghost that decided a murder trial. Yeah. she was Fascinating. And she, not that long ago in so the like, scheme of things. So like a member of my family, a possible member of my family, <laughs> was murdered by a possible member of my family. <laughs> right? Oh my god. Okay. Merry Christmas. That's the best Christmas <laughs> present ever. Thank you. You're welcome. And I mean that 100%. I love it. Okay, I well, can't so wait now... to fucking tell everyone. <laughs> well, so now I'm going to ruin your childhood. Okay, I'm ready. Uh, so the Ghost of Christmas present is next. And I, you know, I don't like playing the favorites game. But if I had to, if someone stuffed like mistletoe in the barrel of a gun and aimed it at me, I would, under duress, say, okay, well, the Ghost of Christmas present is probably my favorite spirit. Why? Uh, 
I just love the way he's written. I mm -hmm. love what he represents. He's just this jolly, hearty giant of a character. And he, he's, he's Santa Claus. He's basically Santa Claus. Right. He's consciously modeled My on favorite Santa Claus. My favorite is present, too, but only because of Carol Kane uh, and Scrooge. Oh, yeah. She's, she's brilliant. She's, she's fucking, brilliant. She's fucking awesome. She's my but favorite. But the Ghost of the Present is, is, whenever I'm feeling like not in the spirit of the season, I read the chapter of the Ghost of Christmas Present, of the, the second of the three spirits, and I, it just makes me want to celebrate Christmas because, like, that's what he does. He, he makes, he's the, he's not that he's lighthearted, he's just like this big, um, burly, fun, like rip roaring guy. He he's kind of reminds me of Santa Claus and Falstaff and Gandalf all at the same time. Right, a little and, dash of Paul Wingo in there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. a friend and, of ours. <laughs> yeah, and so he's got this like, come on, celebrate. And he's like showing him all this really cool shit. Like this is what people do, and he takes mm -hmm. them all over the place. In most movies, they they gloss over certain details. They focus on you know taking him to market and taking him to the Cratchit's house, but he takes him to a ship where he sees how they celebrate Christmas at sea. Mm -hmm. uh, he takes them to a coal mine where he shows them, like, and he just, it's a really cool, you know, he's like the original folklorist. <laughs> Love but, it. But he's uh, absolutely based, at least in part, on uh, the very English co concept of St. Nicholas or Santa Claus, mm -hmm. right? And since he entreats Scrooge at some point, come in and know me better, man, I thought, well, let's get to know him a little better. Okay. So rather than tell an actual ghost story here, I'm going to ruin your childhood by telling you a very brief Cliff Notes version, as brief as I could do anyway, of the sort of true and very dark history of Santa Claus. I don't know if you're going to ruin my childhood or just make it better. Well, I will, I will tell you, after all this, had I not wanted to be Santa Claus before, I definitely want to be it now. <laughs> of so course, we, you know, we in here in America, most of us know when someone says old Saint Nick or Saint Nicholas, like we immediately think of the, you know, the old fat guy with the beard and, and the, the, the rosy cheeks covered in soot, squeezing down the chimneys to give presents to good little boys and girls and lumps of coal to us. Yeah, and um, <laughs> <Us>. <laughs> and that and that's fine. That's been a tradition for a long time now, at least over 150 years. Most people don't know that the figure of Saint Nicholas, who we're told is he's based on, is actually a fourth-century um, Turkish bishop. There's a lot of legends about. And that that's who he's at least partially based on. And that among some of the really fucked up stories about uh, St. Nicholas, Bishop of Myra, is that he, for example, resurrected the pickled dismembered corpses of three kids who had been murdered by an evil innkeeper and his pickled wife. Pickled and dismembered. Yeah. Right. They, they had been murdered. They were they were this innkeeper and his wife that were running a, a youth hostel. And these kids came there and they killed them and were like, we're, we're going to sell their bodies for meat a la Sweeney Todd. And St. Nicholas felt a disturbance in the force, I guess, and showed up and made them admit to the crime and then resurrected the bodies out of the, the brine. Fucked up story, but that's a, that's an actual St. Nicholas legend that, that has been observed wow. for hundreds of years. Um, I thought when you said pickled that they had pickles for children, like they were a little crazy, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm glad it's No, clarified. but give it another thousand years and that'll be a story. That gets told about St. Nicholas. Um, Let's start it now. You guys spread but, the word. It turns out, so St. Nicholas, though, as, as far as being a Catholic saint and, and his, his whole collection of stories and being a gift giver and all that, like, that's, he's only one of the religious figures that Santa Claus is based on. 
And mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I remember watching it, some stand-up comedian on television late at night when I was probably up past my bedtime watching some, you know, fucking comedy hour thing. And this comedian made this joke uh, that I still it still resonates. And it's, I still remembered he was like, Satan, Santa, have the same letters in their name. They both wear red. <laughs> <laughs> they both have the inside track and all the bad shit I'm doing. Right. <laughs> I've never seen them together. Coincidence? <laughs> <laughs> How do you know? Well, We've never seen them before. So it turns out that Santa Claus is basically the alter ego of Lucifer. Right, yes. So that all, you know, basically, I mean, I hate to say it, but all those crazy televangelists are right. There is a war on Christmas. It's like Jesus and, and, and Santa Claus are duking it out for the soul of the season. That's, that's an overstatement. That's actually yeah. not. It's not that Santa Claus is Lucifer. It's kind of that he's more of a sort of neutered version of the idea of the devil. And that he's not so much the devil's alter ego as he is the alter ego of the sort of pagan deities that he was based on. Right. So if you go back to the old ways of Christmas, um, like it was said earlier in the podcast, like this was a dark time of year. This was uh, it, most people up until very recently in the grand scheme of things associated Christmas with death and um, cold well, the and coming hardship. of winter. Yeah, exactly, right? right? This says, was the time like of year. Like the 5th or the 6th of January mm-hmm. when winter officially starts, right? So it was between... I can't remember the dates. Don't hold me to it. Was it was the winter solstice, basically. The winter it was solstice, when, when right. winter was like so fall was, was like, coming, or fall was done and winter was coming. Yeah, it was kind of this celebration, sort mm-hmm. of, of all of the darkness and cold and barrenness to come. Well, it was a time to reflect on the fortunes of the previous year. Right. And if you happen to be old or sick and didn't really stand much chance of surviving the winter, it was a time to think about Eat eternal life. It's time to eat candy. <laughs> well, um, it's, so, I mean, we call them Christmas trees now, but like evergreens like spruce and cedar and pine, uh, they've long been associated with like how we observe the season because they are symbolically as well as literally the only plant life uh, from in many countries that maintain their green, their vitality through the winter. Throughout the year. Yeah. And What's your favorite smell? Which tree? Oh, I love spruce. Me too. The smell of spruce. Really? Yeah. Oh, cheers to that. Yeah. Same here. So back to Santa Claus. Remember that. Remember the forest uh, Mm -hmm. illusion and the the tree thing because we go back to uh, Santa Claus. So when the Dutch reformists, the Protestant Dutch, came over here uh, and settled like around in what's now Pennsylvania in the 1600s here in America, they wanted to celebrate Christmas like they're forefathers did but being protestants now they were kind of mm-hmm. leery of the all the catholic trimmings of saint nicholas saint, yeah so they brought with them a different figure a folklore figure that was kind of a that had been around for a very very long time in the old country called pelsnickel 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 sounds like a type of bread it really does right it sounds really really good well it literally translates to mean furry nicholas <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and he very was very creative. Well, and so and the creative. the assumption for a long time was that they were talking about this was kind of like a wild man kind of rugged pioneer version of Saint right. Nicholas, but it's not. Old Nick is a, is a euphemism for the devil. Oh. Uh, and has been for a long, 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 long time. But so this Pelsnickel guy was this shaggy, pelt-clad wild man that, that <laughs> he had kind of a taste for mischief and for doling out swag, if he liked to. 
Nice. Sometimes okay. you would have to leave things out for him to protect your property. Uh, right. It depended. And he, um, once you get past the name, the, the Nicholas connection, and, and parts of the job description, he actually has a lot more in common not so much with St. Nicholas, Bishop of Myra, who we were discussing earlier, who saves dead pickled children from the basements of evil mm-hmm. innkeepers, but with the satyr, with goat, mm-hmm. with the divine sort of uh, long pagan-worshipped goat men of ancient times who have been across many, 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 many cultures. Like, so in rituals dating back to prehistory, the wild man was the most important god of all the pantheon of gods that any society worshipped because he represented... Uh, plenty, fertility. He kept the seasons on track. He had uh, he had control of elemental forces like thunderstorms and wind and things like that. Remember all this because we're gonna hit we're gonna touch back on it again. Okay. So he wasn't necessarily good or evil. He's I think I've said this before, but he was yeah. one of those like demon type characters who's just sort of in D and D parlance we'd call him chaotic neutral. <laughs> <laughs> but but yearly around the winter solstice he would either come to town of his own accord or be led to town usually by a woman that promised sexual favors. Um, was was some very I'm describing the kind of proto ritual that would have variations all throughout Europe and in other parts of the world. So like they many, would have many... festivals where one woman would be chosen and she would be the one to lead him to town. Like that yeah, kind of shit. and then yeah. some guy would dress up in like a shaggy suit, usually made of goat hair. He would usually have horns because right. th- that goes back, and we'll get to where the horns come from in a second. But he would come to town and like he would fuck shit up. Like he would drink and he would whore and he would destroy property and that was kind of the toll he exacted for all the shit he did for people and uh you in some of these rituals many of them especially uh, later on um he was uh he would offer himself up for sacrifice because his death represented winter and his rebirth represented and ensured spring okay. it was this very old pagan concept of as above so below so they were very concerned with uh, enacting rituals that ensured the steady kind of uh, cycle of seasons. So, right. like, okay, somebody has to be uh, the wild man. And and in old, old days, they used to actually kill the person. But then in later times, right. it just became pageantry, where, like, they would, someone would pretend to die. They would have a, a sacred prostitute that would go into the forest and lure him back. And then other characters would show up to put him in chains and drag him through town after he'd run amok and then lead him into this temple or a cave or a hut somewhere. And, this, and they would pretend to have sex and then... Uh, they'd pretend to kill him, and that was just how they observed it. And from that ritual came all sorts of things. It came the Maypole ritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, came uh, even some theorists suggest that that's where the whole idea of tragedy comes from. Tragedy, in it as a root, the word literally means goat play, uh, mm. and and has a lot to do with. Uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So if we. <laughs> So I, all I, just to love the fact of it's like I why are you love, yelling at me, Michael? I picture because I'm excited, Jamie. <laughs> I'm excited. I have a boner for old Santa Claus. Oh, uh, it's not wrong. Anyway, so <laughs> I just love the idea of Santa Claus like coming to town once a year and like tearing it up like a hell's angel and then letting us kill him, right. <laughs> and then coming back for the net for more later on. Yeah. Like it seems it's a pretty cool. You know, I'm just. Next time my mom tells me that asking Santa for a PlayStation was a bit much, I'm gonna be like, you know. Anyway, so... If Santa's not going to get you a PlayStation, who is? I mean, he, he's fine with me killing him, but he's not going to get me a PlayStation. Right. Come on. Um, Ridiculous. But when, so this long line of wild men, goat 
men figures that Santa hails from, they go back and back and back. I mean, the Dutch called him Pelsnickel, and that comes from many bastardizations of various names. Um, mm-hmm. In Trinidad, he was right. called Papa uh, Papa Boyas, uh, had a similar figure. He was like a trickster figure that showed up and could be munificent Ghosts. or evil. And had uh, yeah. Say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ancient Celts had their god, the horned god, uh, Cernunos. And it just, so the the medieval church comes along, and specifically under the reign of Gregory I, uh, Pope Gregory the Great, he um, got this whole trend going, because their church, now mind you, the the church was trying to get a foothold in all these European countries that had been pagan for so, so, so very long, and they wanted Jesus to, you know, the figure of Jesus to be like, to have a monopoly in the whole death, resurrection, salvation Mm -hmm. gambit. So, but... The figure of the wild man was so prominent and so popular among especially rural communities outside of the city. Um, Because I want you to know something. Like, even though we've been, you know, Europe has been considered a Christian nation since, you know, for uh, two fucking millennia now. These Some of these Seder rituals in various cultures in Europe were still being observed as late as the 1700s. Um, Well, they're... Getting back on it. Well, yeah, yeah, and they never <laughs> they, and they never truly went away. They all they stayed with us. You know, they came. Yeah. became the Feast of Fools, uh, and 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 the May Day uh, parades and things like that. So they so the church basically came along and they had to make the wild man's like he's too popular to get rid of. So we'll recast him. So now he's the villain, <laughs> right? Um, which sounds like a demotion, but he did have a gig to get him through the holidays, right? Right. He became when Saint Nicholas became the gift giver figure, the good guy, uh, the good guy. He always had with him Krampus. The Krampus, yay! Who has all the traditional features of Pan or of the the, the, the goat, satyr. the satyr. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got the goat hair, the horns. Uh, you know, has that 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 sort of lewd disposition that we that we associate with this, and that's and that was his job. Like, so if you go to like, and it, this is still observed actually in parts of Germany and Austria and Bavaria. There are uh, traditions where whole troops of people will dress up as one. One will be Saint Nicholas, and they'll have a bunch of uh, Krampuses or Krampi. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the plural is, and they they take great pride. They they have these parades which you Krampi. can see. Well, I kind of wanted to be Krampi. Yeah. Um, but they go. They actually go to houses. They make house calls. And the person mm-hmm. playing Saint Nicholas actually has a really boring job. They're this Saint Nicholas is Way not boring. Nothing compares to Santa Claus really, really poorly in my opinion. Because all he does is really kind of show up, and he's got this book of your misdeeds that he reads from that the parents have usually called ahead and been like, okay, so Billy did this, Billy, or it's it's like you know, of us did this. Right. <laughs> and right, so yeah. the saint will will challenge him with that, and meanwhile hold like the Krampus at bay. And the Krampus are like behind him, like just with their with their birch rods and their cat of nine tails and their shit, just fucking ready to just unleash on this fucking kid. And the saint's job is to be like, oh, yeah, if you don't do what I tell you, this kid, this, this these these demons are gonna take you to hell. And it's a tradition that that kids go through that, and it it, it culminates in I'm I'm not shitting you. It culminates in the Saint Nicholas actor essentially challenging the kids to. Uh, the equivalent of a Bible verse rap battle <laughs> and the extent to which they know their Bible verse and agree to be good, the Krampus are kept at bay. And if not, then they come in. And it's this whole thing. I mean, you see videos of it where like the family take great pride. And I'm like, this, the kids, they love it. You know, they're terrifying, but they love it. Yeah. Um, you know, I know that too, like some people, it was that it started to be that Jesus was the Santa Claus. Jesus was the one bringing you presents. And that's some people like that still, that's what they believe is that G- little kids believe Jesus is bringing them. Well, and that presents. also kind of that elides into the St. Nicholas um, 
legend in really older versions of his legend, way before we gave him a beard uh, and made him look kind of like what he would, what would go on to be Santa Claus. He was known as the boy bishop. He he uh, was yeah, a little yeah, yeah. kid who stood up. Um, after being only like four weeks old or something like that and could recite Bible verse at two and became a bishop uh, because uh, apparently the, the ghost of a bishop, uh, the, the current bishop of Myra, like told the, the monks or the friars that like whoever whoever comes through this, the church door next uh, named Nicholas will be the bishop. And um, here comes Nicholas, never very far from the church to begin with, mm-hmm. walks in like, oh, you're the bishop now. And then, so he was associated with like a, being a child, being a boy. And so there's a lot of weird kind of cross currents here of like, well, well Jesus, the, the child Jesus, because that's his birthday. That seems on. Un- why should Jesus get you stuff for his birthday? That seems... It doesn't make any sense, no. But so the so the Krampus... Although that's very Church of Christ, right? It, it kind of yeah. is. And it's and it's very nice of him, I will say that. But the whole Santa Claus thing... Santa. Getting back to St. Nicholas and Krampus. So Krampus is... It's, when you when you look at the... I, I think, personally, and I'm, I'm not the only one that thinks this, that Krampus and St. Nicholas, who appear together in most German and Austrian traditions now uh, around Christmas, like, it's not... It's like the old god of the forest, the satyr, has been split into two. So you have the the sort of boring, good-natured, mm-hmm. abstracted saint and, and the slavering, you know, lewd demon that just wants to fuck shit up right. together again, the but they're now two different people yeah. because that's just the only way we can conceive of it now under Christianity. It's the only way it kind of works within the dynamic of the church. Um, and again, if Krampus sounds familiar, it's because he uh, has uh, he's the direct descendant of Pan. Right, yeah. And... The thing is, he was here, now. Here's the thing about Pan, though, is like most of us who who you know bothered looking into Greek mythology, we think of Pan as being a, a lesser deity who's kind of you know the god of the forest. He's you know he's the he's the the horned, hooved, flute playing, <laughs> randy right. forest dweller. He's but he's the, one of the most fun. <laughs> he is, yeah. and it just so happens that Herodotus, uh, the the great uh, Greek writer, writing in the fourth century BC. He theorized, and there is some scholarship to bear this out, uh, that Pan originally, in even earlier times, was the god, was was oh. the one god, and he had such power. Again, we're talking about control over elemental forces, which, of course, primitive people are most concerned with. Right. And he had such power and such standing that, that it was uncouth and just bad form to utter his name. So he was discussed in terms of his attributes, which being a god, were various and complicated. So uh, Herodotus theorized that poets like Homer and Hesiod, the old ancient Greek poets, uh, would dis- would talk about Pan, but talk about him in disguised terms. They would say he was just, he was wrathful he was fertile he was good he was bad and uh, because they couldn't name him by name without evoking him and that's just bad juju so can i just say something really quickly just talking about pan so i went to italy a couple years ago and i was in a museum and if you're sensitive sometimes you will have moments of more sensitivity than others and you're like what's weird something's weird here and the only time that i got super like uncomfortable Mm -hmm. i stopped i like i was walking through this museum and seeing all the stuff whatever and i stopped and i was kind of like in a hallway with stuff on each side of me and i think we were in venice yeah it was in venice and i looked to my right and right there was a figure of pan 
Do you, do you do you do know that that's where the term panic comes mm-hmm. from? It was very strange, yeah. Right, right. And that yeah, it was so very cool. cool, yeah. Well, so Herodotus was saying that like Pan was originally the god to to even more ancient peoples, and that because of poets and priests who couldn't mention him by name, instead talked about these various attributes that were all not so much in conflict but were distinct from each other. Right. And over time, in popular consciousness, those attributes were regarded as gods in their own right. Gotcha. Okay. So that basically Pan, the the wild, the original, the OG nature deity, kind of fragmented into the classical pantheon. Okay. Uh, and he was kicked out because he was demoted. Like the, the <laughs> he he diversified and then got kicked out of his own fucking Classic. you know house. Yeah, and uh, was then after the, he was the wild man. He was looked upon even by ancient Greeks with some contempt. Although he was still worshipped as the god among fringe groups for centuries and continued to be so until uh, as late as the seventeen uh, the seventeen twenties. Which is fucking crazy, right? Awesome yeah. to think about how long. And so, but Pan is basically Santa Claus. That was the role he played. He was the wild man who ensured the seasons and who'd come and would like represented all our baser instincts, but then all the things we needed to survive. So, he would, and he would die right before the winter solstice, and mm-hmm. he would be resurrected in spring. Right, yeah, in spring, which sounds just very familiar. So familiar. <laughs> well, and a lot of gods in a lot of different world mythologies have that. Uh, are, you can map mm-hmm. that story onto any any number of them, right? Like the Ark, kind uh, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but I mean, you, the the Assyrian god Moloch, all these other guys. I mean, they just goes back and back and back. And I mean, I could talk forever about this, but so, he could. Um, he literally. But could. there's things. So so Pan's journey from <laughs> this sort of ousted god who really gave birth to all the others. Uh, in the popular consciousness, to San- becoming Santa Claus is a very long and winding one with a lot of really fucking weird stops along the way. Like just very briefly, there are two like there are two seasonal like Christmas witches in Italy and Austria, uh, mm-hmm. respectively, uh, uh, La Bufanu and Fra Perchta, who are like these witch figures. I think Perchta has uh, she has like the Janus head. She's like two she's two faced, okay. so she has an ugly head and a pretty head, and like so people don those masks and they'll turn and look at you, whatever. Um, but she's good. She's a gift bringer. Uh, but if you're bad, she slits you open and replaces your innards with rocks and straw. Uh, so oh, that's dark. Like, that's a different take on the coal. Well, <laughs> again, different. coal and brimstone brings it back to hell, brings it back to the devil, brings mm-hmm. it back to Pan, who was, of course, the, the... You would think a lot of these places would be like, fucking yes, coal, I'm going to stay warm. But... <laughs> right, right. No. but a kid didn't want coal. It just meant no. more work for them. Um... <laughs> Unless they worked in a coal mine, and then that was money. Money, or it was just a sad reminder of what they had to do on Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Coal, coal, everywhere I look is coal. God damn it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, children were like, then canaries came along and put children out of work. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, it's so dark. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's dark. Everything else. Um, So Yeah, that was real dark. That was real dark. It was really really dark. It was a good thing. The canaries took the place so kids didn't have to die anymore because adults didn't want to breathe in the air anyway so um there's a so he went on to like in more urban areas like in cities like paris and and venice and and uh, you know non-rural city centers in medieval times 
these old festivals, these wild man festivals took on, began sort of, they were co-opted by the church and like, mm-hmm. well, people are going to celebrate them anyway. So we have to kind of refashion the stories so that they think they're celebrating this. Or, so they're, they're going to do it anyway. We might as well give it our spin. And so the wild man, Pan, you know, uh, the goat man, Seder, whatever, he uh, took on, he, he, he was remarkably adaptable. So throughout history he changed and eventually became the master of ceremonies mm-hmm, uh, at, mm-hmm. during the feast of fools right uh so like clopin the character from hunchback of notre right, dame yeah, that yeah. he's kind of in he's comes from that line of wild men and even the the pattern the typical pattern on the harlequin outfit of the fool the medieval fool the diamondback pattern mm-hmm. is thought by scholars to be a sort of abstract very citified um version of the coat of leaves often worn oh. with the goat hair of the wild man okay, uh, in, in, in old traditions. So it just, go, it just goes on and on and on. And I, I love talking about it because it's... So I just... To, to sum it up, talking about the history of old St. Nick, I just want... Next time, you know, you know, we think about the jolly old fat man in the red suit, just think about all these characters from... And it goes back... I mean, all the relationships are there. You've got Krampus. You've got Pelznickel. You've got this the Trinidad uh, Papa Boyas. You've got the, the classic medieval fool. You've got Sir Nuno's. Even the sorcerer, the shaman sorcerer, the horned shaman sorcerer depicted on... Uh, the cave wall of the oldest living, the oldest known example of man-made prehistoric art in the the cave Trois Frères, France. Trois Frères. Trois Frères. Love it. <laughs> Three brothers. Um, but it also it bleeds into the Merlin mythology. It bleeds into the Robin Goodfellow, aka Puck mythology. It feeds into Robin Hood. It feeds into all these characters related to it. And in modern parlance, I mean, even. In Lord of the Rings, you've got Gandalf, you have Treebeard, you have Tom Bombadil. Mm-hmm. Um, wizards. Wizards, you know, but, but forest wizards and witches. Right. Uh, the Spirit of the Forest from Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke mm-hmm. is in direct relation to all these. Hell, even uh, fucking Bigfoot, if you want to go that route. <laughs> I don't. Um, you know, but that's all. <laughs> so I just say, and and just bear in mind, too, that even Santa's reindeer, in, in our popular consciousness of the term, um, have elemental names. Donner and Blitzen, for example, means thunder and lightning. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the next time you wake up on Christmas morning and you find some gifts waiting for you beneath the evergreen. Count yourself fortunate that you were found, that you were favored by the wily old right, and you weren't god of the forest. Stuffed with rocks and shit. <laughs> yeah. A terrible taxidermy. I'm fascinated. See, now that's I just awesome. want to be Santa Claus even more. Yes, that's. Thank you, Michael. That was amazing. You're very welcome. I feel very, very educated. And I have one more. And my yeah, last, I was going to say, my, you my, have future, my right? Of, my Ghost of Christmas Future story is a personal one. So, Ghost of Christmas Future is the scariest one. The scariest one. Clearly death. Yeah. I mean, clearly death. Right. Right, but scary. Tell me your story. Well, so I, uh, n- n- no one has ever shown up and showed me my own grave. Thank God for that. Yeah, but I've, I've been a pretty nice guy most of my life, so maybe maybe when I turn into an asshole in the future. Like, I mean, I don't think, I don't think I'm bad enough a person for any spirits to waste a Christmas Eve on. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, I agree. But, you know, I could use some work. But, you know, it's whatever. I'll have we, the, Who's perfect? You know, I, no I'll be one. visited one day by the ghost of Christmas. You could do a little better. <laughs> um. <laughs> the ghost of Christmas focus. <laughs> The ghost of Christmas, fucking relax. <laughs> the ghost of Christmas, Xanax. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh my god, yes. I want to do a modern version of A Christmas Carol. <laughs> Just be where dry. it's like someone that's not really all that bad gets visited by spirits whose intentions are kind of mild. Right. Like, you just maybe the ghost of Christmas, can you remember to turn off the stove? <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> well, Love so I, I have all my life, uh, as far back as I can remember, been obsessed with the the ghostly black hooded figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, you know, Dickens, of course, resurrects very effectively as the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mysterious. But, you know, but that figure figures largely in, in a lot of ghost stories, mm-hmm. both real and fictional. And uh, like there, there's uh, a famous uh, English uh, 1960s occurrence called the, the Poltergeist of Pontefract, where, among many other fucked up shit, they would see the ghost of of um, what looked like a Benedictine monk, a guy in the traditional black Benedictine garb with the, the cape and cowl over over their head, uh, screwing their features. Well, so all that is to say that I don't have to go very far to find a story that relates to this because when I was a baby, I think I alluded to this story in an earlier episode, so I'll finally tell it. When I was a baby, and I, I have no memory of it, but my brother, who, again, is, a, is about nine years mm-hmm. older than me, when I was a baby, my brother and I were, lived, were in different rooms. The nursery was next to his, and he would have to pass by it to go to the restroom, because the restroom's in the hall. And one night, he, and my brother has told me this story for years, and he said one night he woke up and had to go pee, so he walked by. The nursery door was open, you know, uh, always. And he just passed by it, went to the bathroom, and as, it, as he was peeing, he said it, it, something hit him, like it was just something, he'd seen something or something was not right, so he made it a point to kind of check back in the nursery as he was going back to his bedroom. As he just, something seemed off. His instinct told him to look. And he says that his, he passed back by my the nursery. He looked in and saw me asleep in my crib. And he saw this figure that he describes as a tall man in a black monk's robe and hood with his hands hidden by his sleeves and his face completely obscured by the cowl standing perpendicular to the door and kind of just hovering near my bed uh, or my crib rather and his hands were crossed over hiding in the sleeves not like at his sides yeah 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 his hands were hidden yeah thank you because i realized he was doing the movement, but you can't see it. I'm a very physical actor. Uh, but my brother saw this, and he, and he added this detail that seems uncharacteristic of my brother's imagination. Because <laughs> my brother doesn't have much of one. And, <laughs> uh, well, he just doesn't. He's a very practical guy. Right. He, he doesn't really believe in any of this stuff. But, I mean, he doesn't want to mess with it either. But And when he, whenever he would tell me the story as a kid... I could always tell there was there were stories he would tell me to freak me out, and there were stories he would tell me because they were real, and and mm-hmm. I just got a sense of you know where this they overlapped, real. and this one always seemed real because of this detail. He said whoever or whatever it was was standing not on the floor but like a lower floor. It's oh. like he looked like they were. He said he kind of looked as though they were like the carpet was the surface of a of a pool they were wading in which seemed odd. And mm-hmm. my brother saw that and just kind of thought, okay, uh, fuck it, I'm going to bed. Because he's nine, what's he going to do? Right. Uh, that I looks like a not my problem. It's not fair to my brother. I think he went back to the room to get something or alerted my parents and came in and there was nothing there. And I got told that story 
for years as a kid and I used to tell my brother like fuck you it's like whatever oh so Santa Claus isn't real but this motherfucker is <laughs> right I was and, gonna say <laughs> and um it just so happened that my when I was 18 and I was at home and just before I was going out uh on a night it was it was I long story short I was going out and this night would have gone very very badly for me is I won't go into great detail about it, except to say that had I left uh, when I intended to leave, um, I would have been in a car wreck that might have might well have killed me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because I ran a little late, I had to drive myself and didn't go with the friend that was originally going to meet me at his house. And uh, he went ahead without me, and I had okay. to catch up with him, and he got in a car wreck. Okay. He survived, but the, the side that I was sitting on was completely totaled and crushed. Wow. And I was running late. I had really long hair and I was very vain. <laughs> was. Uh, and I was, <laughs> it long, was taking me forever. Hair. I was like brushing it. I was like one, like 101, 102. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me forever. And I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to have. So I called my friend to tell him, like, look, you're just going to have to. I'm just going to meet you there, uh, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. So just go on ahead without me. Like what you said to me about the airport. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, I I wasn't as... Well, when my hair... When I had to look good, I would take all the time in the world, and I wasn't very punctual as a teenager. You had to cut your hair to get to the airport four hours early. (laughs) It's just what had to happen. What am I, a president? Anyway, so... But as I was looking in the mirror of the bathroom while brushing my hair, uh, uh, being late now to where I was supposed to meet my friend, I saw the briefest flash of black behind me in the hallway uh and so i fucked that because i thought i was alone in the house and i walked into to, to the hallway to see what the fuck it was because it was clearly too big to be one of the dogs and i just looked around and saw nothing and then i just saw my bedroom which had now been my bedroom for years it was a nursery but it, i'd been living in the same room all my life and i looked in and just caught the briefest fucking glimpse of this figure standing in the corner this was the middle of the day i might add of this figure standing in the corner with uh, his head down he was facing me but i couldn't see his face because it was obscured by the hood mm-hmm. and his hands were clasped around each other presumably underneath in front of him yeah the oh sleeve. My God. and he was hovering he he looked like he he looked like he ought to be taller than he was as the best way i can put it and then he was gone, like in the blink of an eye, he was gone. And I, I freaked out about that, and I was like, I didn't know what to do, so I kind of sat down. I wrote it down, because I wanted to keep the time and everything else uh, current. And so I, I just, I, I missed, you know, meeting my friend. Uh, I had already told him I was going to, but he, he didn't wait, and he went. And because of, because of that one little brief intervention, perhaps, uh, wow. I got saved from a car wreck. It <gasps> certainly injured me, if not killed me. Yeah. Oh, creepy! Yeah. I got goosebumps. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah, I'm a little personal story. So there you go. Merry Christmas. The ghost you're probably related to. The history of Santa Claus. An old Roman ghost in chains. Love it. And That one's for Jack. We'll have to tell him in a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, So good. Gosh. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. And Merry Christmas to you guys. Yes. Thank you guys for listening, for giving us... You know, we've been we've been going for three months now, almost. Oh, that's crazy. I know really? it's kind of crazy. It feels um, like we just started. I know, I know. This is our fifteenth episode, though. Ooh, Can you believe it? Hell yeah! Yeah. So, uh, for the people listening, if you could go, if you're listening on iTunes, I don't know how you would review on Spotify or Google Play, but what, however you're listening, if you could take a moment to give us a, a you know a good review. 
Not a bad one. Give us the best review. Yeah, if you like us, Write give a few us a good words. review. If you don't like us, don't do shit. Yeah, yeah. But we, you know, that would be <laughs> definitely helpful. And um, we would just really, really appreciate that. We are also t- discussing um, starting a Patreon so we can provide some more content, yes. more ghost stories. Um, we're really enjoying doing the hysteria yes. <laughs> stuff. But we also want to provide more ghost story content as well. And so... Uh, stay tuned. We're thinking, we were thinking January for the Patreon, but um, Christmas is busy. So. And so is New Year. We have so a lot of wild men to kill. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, what we're looking at is we have some merch opportunity coming, merchandise opportunity. That means we got t shirts coming, we've yeah. got pins coming, we've got other stuff coming um, in so cool. February. I can't wait. We're very excited about it. Uh, there will be a Bitches in White t-shirt. Hell yeah! There will be a Ghoul Intentions t-shirt. Uh, with Patreon, we'll have a couple of different tiers to choose from um, that will come with different things and provide different content and uh, stuff like that. So stay tuned for that. We're in the process of developing that. So towards the beginning of, Jan- of February, February, we will... Uh, We'll get moving on that. So maybe in know, time for Valentine's Day. Maybe, yeah. We'll uh, so stay tuned. We'll definitely keep you informed on that. You know, with the podcast uh, weekly. But just thank you everybody for listening. We couldn't have done this without you guys uh, being as into this as we are, and uh, we just can't tell you thank you enough. So thank you. Thank you. Merry fucking Christmas. Happy fucking holidays. You guys are the best. (laughs) Um, And we will be live streaming. We're also going to minimize our streaming down to once a month, it seems. Yeah. Um, Starting in January. It's just more practical. Our schedules are a little crazy, so it's hard for us to, to do the live stream. So we'll probably just do, I'm thinking the first Wednesday of the month, we'll do a live stream on Twitch. But we will be uh, on Wednesday, the, t- the day after Christmas. <laughs> yes. We will yes. be doing a live stream uh, on Twitch. Find us at Ghoul Intent. And we'll do about an hour just chit-chatting about, you know, whatever you guys want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Woot. Yeah, and of course, you know, guys, go to the website, ghoulintentions.com, and, and continue giving us your submissions, because we do like to do the cold open. Uh-huh. Uh, with with the reader submission, I mean Charles Dickens is dead, long dead, so he can't do anymore. Nope. Uh, so is Algernon Blackwood, sadly. Mm-hmm. But uh, but you guys, well, we love your more, stories. The more content, we're going to want to read uh, submitted stories. Mm-hmm. So we're definitely going to need more stories Absolutely. for that. So please send us your stories. Send us your stories and and keep them coming. They're really fun. And I guess now we come to. <gasps> Yes. Do you have a special Christmassy, ghosty quote? I have a quote. Okay. (laughs) Whether or not it's Christmassy is up to you. Well, now it will be Christmassy because we're doing it on Christmas. Okay. Let me see. Where was it? I'm excited. I feel good about this. Oh, okay. I'm either going to win or I'm going to fail spectacularly, either which I'm happy with. Okay. I knew you weren't suited for literature. I knew you wouldn't. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it just seemed like the perfect quote to say to you. Well, what's it from? It, it was, but what the fuck is it from? It's Not a book, clearly. Yes, no. Yes and no. It's from A Muppet's Christmas Carol. <laughs> it's Gonzo. God damn it. <laughs> I could have I could have said it in Gonzo's voice if I could say Gonzo's, or could do Gonzo's voice, but I can't. 
Um, I haven't worked on it though, maybe. Let me give it a whirl and see if I can. A whirl. A whirl. whirl. That's, you should do the Gonzo voice for a sign out. No, <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. I don't have a Gonzo voice. All right. I just have my Scrooge voice. It's good. And my strong, and my and my my minor voice. <laughs> and Merry all Christmas, of the other... everybody! <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, thank you again for listening, guys. And remember, it's, it's okay, okay to, to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights on. on. And God bless us, everyone. <laughs>